Good morning. Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are looking at the doctrines of our faith using our statement of faith, which is the Second London Baptist Confession, as our template and as the uh, methodical method that we can use to approach our doctrines. We have begun going through the confession again, um, which uh, began with some explanations about creeds and confessions and what they are. If you're joining us on Sermon Audio for the first time, you can go back and find those other messages that talk about the importance of creeds and confessions and why we have subscribed to a confession or accepted a confession as our church's statement of faith. Um, this 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 1, is of the Scriptures, and that is what we are working our way through. Um, we are actually working through, um, let me find it so I can make sure I speak this correctly, paragraph 4, and you know it's a little difficult when you're studying ahead and reviewing things and updating documents and everything, and I'm out of paragraph 7, paragraph 4 is a little bit like in memory, it's not, as, not as right there. All right, so uh, we're working our way through paragraph 4. Basically, we're talking about the canon of the scriptures, and then more importantly, um, the canonicity of the scriptures and why um, we believe the books of the Bible that we have accepted as canon, that the confession states are canon, that frankly the church has accepted as canon for about uh, 1,800, 1,900 years now, um, are indeed the books of the Bible. And we just went through a section about the, um, the evidence of the, for the authority of the Old Testament, and now today we're beginning with the evidence for the authority of the New Testament. Okay, and this, this is working through, by the way. We're, we're, you'll see as we go here that the first thing that we're identifying when we talk about the authority of Scripture is in itself. In other words, what, what does the Scripture say in itself about its own authority? That's what we're working through. Then we're going to go into um, its acceptance by the early church, and we're going to talk about that. So we're starting by talking about within the Scripture itself, so we did talk about the Old Testament. Now we're going to talk about the, author- the evidence for the authority of the New Testament. All right. So first of all, the implications of the New Testament of the organic unity of the Scriptures make it impossible to believe that the divinity of the New Testament can be on a lower plane than that of the Old. I have a whole bunch of Scripture verses listed there, don't I? Now I have to talk about each of these because of the fact that they are not in the Confession. So if you did your homework and you read the paragraphs and then you read the Scriptures... You didn't see these scriptures, or you may have seen one or two, because they are in addition, right? So the confession, and let's just keep this in mind always when we read through the confession. You know, you, I mean, sometimes I've had people say, why didn't they use this verse? This is like so clear to the point of the confession, right? Uh, I can't tell you why they use that verse versus the other verse. I mean, it's, it's a good point. I see it myself all the time. But the footnotes in the confession are not meant to be exhaustive. Right? They're just meant to be a reference or two that point out uh, what that particular line of the confession is. It's not supposed to be a deep dive in that way. Because obviously if it was, you would end up with stuff like this, right? On every, every bullet point, on every, I'm sorry, every footnote on every paragraph, you'd have a long list of scriptures like this. And even more. I mean, they, uh, you know, I'm, we're in one paragraph, and I've expanded that out into a whole bunch of data with a whole bunch of verses. So most people, when they read through the confession, they're not going to take the time to read through all that. Are you with me on this? And nor would you normally, right? If I say, well, read through this, and then, and then here's 150 scripture references for you to read also, you're going to be like, I'll get to it later. I'll get to it. <laughs> then pretty soon it's Sunday, you haven't done it. That's the way it works. So it's not a bad idea that they have fewer scripture references in the, in the footnotes. All right. So... Uh, let me read some of these uh, to you, and um, I'm going to actually suggest that uh, there's a few of them that I'd like you to turn to. The first one is Second Peter chapter 1, and then we'll go to 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have your scripture, your Bible with you, you can turn to Second Peter chapter 1, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Put a finger in there, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All right, so while you're turning to those things... Uh, so, it's this verse that kind of spans the gap here, and then this passage right here. That's the ones you're looking for. All right. So, Hebrews 1, 1, and 2. So, the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, what's it say? God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. So, 
right off the bat, probably Paul, we don't know for sure, but if Paul wrote this, whoever it was, the author is saying, it's a letter to the Jews, to the Hebrews, he's saying, God, who spoke in the past through the prophets, verse 2, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds. In other words, Hebrews is equating the words of Christ with Scripture, right? Can you see this? Now, <clears throat> this is obviously, for us, um, almost self-evident in a way, isn't it? It's so, it's so true, we don't even give it a thought. Like, of course, he's God. So what he says is the word of God, right? right? Legitimately, no question. But there's, what about the rest of the New Testament, right? And did Christ write the books of the gospel? No, he didn't, did he? Is he quoted? Yes, he's quoted in the, in the books of the gospel. But he didn't write them, right? We know who the author, Matthew wrote Matthew. Mark wrote Mark, right? We, we know this. So let's go on, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 11. According to the grace of God, which was, is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What is he saying to the Corinthians? He's saying, I'm laying out the word of God to you. Romans 16, 25 and 26. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. But now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. What is now in Romans made manifest is a further revelation of God. It is not just that of the Old Testament. It is now what the prophets spoke about is now made manifest. Now we see it. Further revelation of God is what he's referring to. Okay, Second Peter chapter 1. This is the first one I ask you to turn to, verses 16 through 21. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard, when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well, that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. So, first of all, notice what Peter is doing. He's referring back to where? The Mount of Transfiguration, where those that were there heard the very voice of God say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He hears this said. Then he goes on to say, we have a more sure word of prophecy, right? What is the more sure word of prophecy, right? So it's not just what the Old Testament prophesied. It's not just that God spoke from heaven, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In other words, the script, he is saying the scriptures themselves, the scriptures, he's not specifying only through the prophets. The scriptures are from God as the Holy Spirit has used and spoken through them. That is who he is specifically saying. 1 Corinthians, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read 14.37 first. 1 Corinthians 14.37, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul is saying, if somebody says they're a prophet, they must acknowledge that what I'm saying is from God. Do you know what that means? He knew he was being inspired to write this word. Now, if you haven't thought about that, that is an interesting thought, isn't it? Did Paul know when he was dictating, some say, or writing the scriptures himself, that it was actually the Holy Spirit? Did it feel supernatural to him? Have you ever thought about that? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? In this passage, we know what the answer is for Paul. He says this is from the Lord. That's what he's writing. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 11. 
For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen as Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of about five hundred, above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then all the apostles. And last of all he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, and I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether I were, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. You can see in this passage, Paul is clearly showing that he is an apostle. He is clearly making the case, look, Christ came, it was prophesied for him to come, here's what happened, here were the witnesses to this. A lot of them are still alive today that saw him after he had risen, over 500, right, above 500, and some are asleep, some had died, but some were still alive. And then he last saw Christ. And he had worked harder than them all, saying it humbly. He goes in to say it's humbly, not him, it's God's grace, right? He is saying, look, I recognize who Christ was. I recognize how he was moving. He is moving through me now also. By the way, when did Paul see Christ? I'll take a drink while you're thinking about it. On the road to Damascus. Anybody else? There's two views to this. So there's two views. I'm asking for the other view. Some would say that he was seen in the road to Damascus. We don't know that for sure. It's possible this is a reference to that, right? We know that he saw a great light. Uh, pretty much everybody's agreed that after that he was blinded temporarily, right? Because the scriptures talk about that. He couldn't see, right? Remember this? So did he see them in that time? Was there a space-time continuum deal that he spent time with him then? We don't know. Could it have happened? Yes, could have happened. Go ahead, Daniel. Is that what you were doing, mate? Years, He's helping you. <laughs> is that what you just told him? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so there is a time period where Paul was actually kind of missing in action, right? He was, not, uh, he was not actually participating actively in what was happening with spreading the gospel. There was a time period there. There was a gap in the very beginning. And so a lot of scholars believe that that was actually a time that he was personally taught by Christ, that Christ appeared and, went, and was with him and taught him. Does the scripture directly say that? doesn't say that. These are the kind of illusions that we get, right, where there's just a reference to that he appeared to him, as one out of time, right? He wasn't, it wasn't the earlier time when he appeared to everybody else. So whether it was the, the, on the road to Damascus or whether it was later in Arabia, it was still a fact that Christ did appear to him at a time other than when he appeared to everybody else. Does that make sense? Okay. That's half a freebie because it's not directly relevant to what we're talking about. Let's keep going. So Second Peter 3, 1 and 2, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us the apostles, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. What is Peter saying? He's saying, I'm writing this to you to remind you of what the prophets said and what the apostles said. He's equating scripture there. And then last John two twenty two. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Well, this is John 2.22, again, equating Christ's words with scripture. Christ's words with scripture. All right. So that was a whole lot of scriptures there. All right. So the summary. All right. So that was the evidence for the authority of the New Testament. We covered the evidence of the authority for the Old Testament last week. And now the summary of the fact of the divine authority. So here are some summary thoughts. The Bible was written by men and is thus a book, both a divine and a human book. Okay, so Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. 
Divine or human? Divine. Who wrote them? Who chiseled them? God. <laughs> he didn't chisel them. He used his finger. That's what the scripture tells us. He used his finger. But the Bible is not that. The Bible was written by men, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so it's both. Human authors do not diminish its divinity. Why? Christ as the God-man is the parallel doctrine, right? So Christ is man, but he's also God. Is his divinity diminished because he's man? No. Likewise, the scripture is the same. The scriptures are not diminished because man wrote them, right? Inspired by the Holy Ghost to write them. Organic inspiration teaches the full humanity of the Bible. The human writer's own personalities and freedom were fully operational. Do we not see this? We talked about this before, right? Luke, the doctor, describes a lot of medical and, and physical things, right? John, how does John write? It's all, it's, what was that? Like a philosopher, that's right. He uses metaphors, he uses similes, he uses all these different things, and he writes it in such a way, obviously, you read John and you read Luke, two totally different descriptions, right? They even start different. Because they're human style and human nature, not nature, but their personality, I guess that's really it, is reflected in it. Does that mean that, well, if their personality's in there, then obviously some of God got slipped out of there. No, it doesn't mean that. It means that God used their personalities. In other words, we needed the book of... Do, do, we, do we really need four Gospels? Could he have done it in one? He could have done it in one. Would you agree? He could, could everything have been said in one Gospel? It could have. But we have four. Why? They're different. Some of the same events are described from a different perspective. Right? Some events are in one and not in the other, right? So God uses this. He uses this. Think about, there's lots of Old Testament books. Think about Jonah. Okay, think about the book of Jonah. You'd have to say that's a melancholy book, would you not? Or melancholy, if you like that better. <laughs> All right, so that's enough about that. We beat it up. Organic inspiration assumes the Reformed and biblical view that the writing of the Scripture can be and is both divinely ordained and the product of free human agency. So that's what we believe. It's biblical. You can't say that because we see characteristics of individuals in the books, that somehow makes it not divine. If that was the case, then there's nothing that's divine. You see what I mean? You can't make that case. Those that reject this view of doctrinal divine sovereignty must reject the complete inerrancy of the Bible. Why? If you believe that any of man's quirks or personalities weaving their ways into the Scripture actually somehow negates that as being divinely inspired, then that's the entire Bible. You can't say that the Bible that we have is not inerrant because how do you know that that particular passage, verse, or whatever isn't uh, a... part of that person and not of the Holy Spirit. Do you see what I'm saying? It could happen. All right. Okay. We moved on. So that was the authority in itself. Now we're going to the authority with us or the authentication of its divine authority. So the first section we're talking about its divine authority within itself. Now we're talking about the authority of the scripture as we see it. So we'll read through paragraph five. It's a big paragraph here. Then we'll break it down. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the magistry of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies. And the entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So basically what this paragraph is saying in whole, and I think you can see this, is that within us we can tell it's a scripture. 
That's essentially what it's saying. Within us, we can tell. So let's break that down. All right, so first of all, the nature of the evidence. Well, the external evidence or the self-authenticating character of general revelation is true. Cornelius Van Til said, the most depraved of men cannot wholly escape the voice of God. What does that mean? They know it's true. That's what it means. The most depraved, non-believer, I'm an atheist, I'm a whatever, they cannot escape the voice of God because they know in their heart. Because of natural revelation, man is always confronted with the divine revelation. So we see this in Psalm 19, 1-3, Romans 1, 18-32, and Acts 17, 17-27. So you can look at those passages. You have to, sometimes you have to write these down. You can look at those passages if you want to, uh, but basically they're all saying the same thing, and that is that God has made it apparent and clear to man. He has made it clear that he is real and he exists. He has written it on their heart that this is true. So whether or not they accept it or not, it's still true. And they still have witness to it in the general revelation, which is the world, creation, that which we see, and that which we feel. The testimony of, the, of Scripture is not that men may know God, nor that they may know him by using their reason. It is that men are confronted with a clear and unavoidable revelation of God. So in other words, Scripture does not say that through nature you can totally know God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or that you can totally understand salvation. It's not that. It's that God is real. He exists. He's there. That's the revelation. In general revelation, creation speaks to us of God. In special revelation, God himself approaches us directly and personally, speaking to us in words. So that's the difference between general and special revelation. And we've talked about this already. We're going to get into it deeper still. But I don't know if we're going to get into it today. But at any rate, that's the the whole idea. General revelation would be creation. So creation does not just mean, oh, man, look at those beautiful trees, beautiful sun, grass, sky, whatever. It means us too. We are created with a conscience, right? We're created with emotions. So it's that spark within us, so to speak, but we're not going down the Greek philosopher's idea of a spark. (laughs) That's totally different. All right. The internal evidence or the self-authenticating character of the scriptures. All right, so that's the second point. In other words, in us, as believers, we know the scripture is a scripture. That's what this is talking about. The Bible is not dead. It's the living word of God. Where do we see this? Jeremiah 23, 28, and 29. Luke 16, 27, 31. John 6, 63. 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25. And Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. Scriptures demand that they're believed without external arguments or debate. In other words, the Scriptures themselves claim to be the Word of God, and they demand that you believe that they're the Word of God. Not that you believe it as long as such and such says it's true. Are you with me on this? In other words, we don't need the Sea of Rome to tell us it's Scripture for it to be Scripture. Scriptures are sufficient for saving faith. We see this in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 31, 11 to 13. John 20, 31, Galatians 1, 8, 9, and Mark 16, 15, and 16. The scriptures are sufficient for saving faith. Now, what do we mean by that? All right. So, we're going to cover this. So I don't want to go too deep on it. But if you, you probably recognize there are a number of verses that talk about that a preacher is needed. How can they know the gospel unless it's preached to them? Right? God has used the what's the what's that? Foolishness. Foolishness of preaching. Right? So the scriptures do talk themselves about how the scriptures, the gospel has to be preached. But the truth of the gospel is within is within the scriptures. So by reading the scriptures, 
you can see what is required for salvation. Now, and if you think about it, that, that doesn't make sense, right? Because any, if you've gone through any kind of training, we had some training here about sharing Christ. If you've gone through any kind of training, what does that training usually do, if it's good training? It says, here's the scriptures to read. Here's the scriptures to turn to. What it doesn't say is, just tell them what you experienced. <laughs> what you experienced is not what they're going to experience. It's not the same. Why? You think, you think you're in the same exact position they were? You think that they have sinned exactly the same way that you've sinned? Do you think they feel exactly the same level of guilt as you do? you think their experience with the Bible and church is the same as yours? Of course it isn't. Of course it isn't. It's not about you. It's about Christ. The gospel is about Christ, not about you. John Calvin said, But with regard to the question, how shall we be persuaded of its divine origin, the scriptures, unless we have recourse of, to the decree of the church? So somebody says, well, how do we know if it's actually the word of God unless the church says so? This is just as if anyone should inquire, how shall we learn to distinguish light from darkness, white from black, sweet from bitter? For the scripture exhibits as clear evidence of its truth as white and black things do of their color or sweet and bitter things of their taste. In other words, he's saying, look, you don't need somebody to tell you that this is black and this is white. You can see there's differences. You can see it. You don't need someone to tell you this is sweet and this is bitter. You can taste it. You don't have to have somebody tell you, yes, those don't taste the same for you to recognize that they don't taste the same. It's evident. Two, the testimony of the Holy Spirit to the Scripture, or the efficacy of the evidence. In other words, from the inward work of the Holy Spirit. Human depravity perverts human intellect. Human depravity perverts human intellect, which spiritually blinds them to the light of divine revelation. So why do we need the Scripture? Because our intellect is perverted. It's not perfect. I'm sorry to say this, but even though you might think so, you don't always understand everything perfectly. Sometimes, I know it's rare, you could be wrong. There could be something that you're looking at from the wrong perspective. Now, why does that matter? Well, when you're talking about salvation, you probably want to get that right. This is an important subject. This is something that you need to understand clearly. And this is not lost on God. God has given us his word to tell us clearly. We see numerous references. I read one a little earlier about how things were not fully revealed in the Old Testament. Old Testament is a big book, isn't it? It's a big book. A lot of chapters. A lot of verses. Big. Salvation not completely explained in the Old Testament. Easy for us now to look back and say, oh yeah, that was, that was uh, evidence. That was that was an explanation, but we just didn't we didn't see that that was what was going to happen there in Jeremiah. But that's what happened. Yeah, that's exactly right. We hindsight, we do see it now. Now it's clear. It wasn't then. There was questions. This is why the Jews had some difficulty. Was the Messiah going to be the warrior that comes from heaven to destroy the enemies of God, or was he going to be the lamb that was sacrificed? There's two different descriptions of this in the Old Testament, isn't there? Now, if you're actually reading through carefully, you can see, we can see, because it's easier for us now, because we have the New Testament. But you can look at the Old Testament and see, we're talking about two different events. Christ coming as the Lamb, and then Christ coming as the victor. Right? We see two different things in the Old Testament. But they didn't all understand that. Why? They didn't have the light of the New Testament, and they didn't have the inward light of the Holy Spirit all the time. They had temporary dwelling of the Spirit, not permanent dwelling. So we see this in Romans one twenty one, Ephesians 4, 17 through 21, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. The testimony of the Holy Spirit removes the evil disposition which spiritually blinds man to divine revelation. So because man normally has an evil disposition, he's blinded to the truths of the Scripture. The scripture is very clear. Someone who is not saved, who is not a believer, does not fully understand the scriptures. Can they read the scriptures and understand some of the scriptures? Yes. But when it gets to the point of them having a deeper insight, something that actually gets to their heart, to explain something to them, they don't have it. It's literature. It's not truth. 
literature, not truth. They can say, this is great, you know, the Bible is a great moral compass. Have you heard that before? I've heard people say that in speeches. The Bible is a great moral compass. Is that true? Yeah, it is a great moral compass. It's just that if you're not saved, you're going to have a much harder time following that compass. Your Google Maps is going to lead you the wrong way. That was a kind of a modern one for you there, Jenny. Okay. You understand what I'm saying, right? So, because their heart has this evil disposition, they have a difficult time understanding the truths of the Scripture. They're not able to do it. They need the Spirit in them to reveal those things to them. The testimony of the Spirit is evidenced by two biblical arguments. Lots of verses here. I'll read a few. First, the Scriptures teach that man must be right ethically. If he is to think aright. So he must be right ethically if he is to think aright. Here we go. Here's a couple of verses. Psalm 111, verses 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And a good understanding have all they that do his commandments, his praise endureth forever. Where is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Someone who does not have the fear of the Lord has a problem with wisdom. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is the instrument of instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. Now John 3, verses 10 through 21, I'm not going to read that, it's a long passage, but this is Christ speaking and talking about him. He's talking to, who is he talking to in this passage? John 3, who is he talking to? Nicodemus. And he's talking about why he came and who he is. To the man of Israel, who according to Christ, he says, Are thou a master of Israel? Knowest not these things? What was Nicodemus' position? He was the teacher of Israel at the time. He was the great teacher of Israel. Went around to other synagogues and instructed them. Comes to Christ because he doesn't understand this. Unclear to him. John 7, 16 and 17. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. In other words, he's saying, look, if you're a believer, you're going to know if what I'm saying is of God. If you're not a believer, you're not going to be so sure about this, are you? John 10, 26 and 27. But you believe not because you are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So he's just making the point again here, that the believers understand that he is Christ and he is God. Those who are not his sheep, those who are not his, don't understand it. They don't believe it. Point number two, it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to see and understand spiritual truth. So we've got a number of references here. Let me just read a couple of them. 1 Corinthians two fourteen and 16, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The believers understand because they have the mind of Christ. John 3 through, 3 through 8, again, with Nicodemus, 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, what does Paul say? Paul says that it is his, his speech is not because he's so good at speaking. It's a demonstration of the Spirit of God. It's God who is speaking through him, and you shouldn't have any faith that stands in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, and 6, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance that you know what manner of men were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, affliction, with the joy of the Holy Ghost. So, Thessalonians, what's Paul say to them? 
he says, you have accepted our word because the Holy Ghost within you. It wasn't just because we spoke so well. It wasn't because we were really great speakers. It's because the Holy Ghost told you that what we said was true. That's why. You can see more in 1 John verses 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Okay, number three. The effort to require external verification and validation of Scripture is virtually a denial of the absolute divine authority of the Bible. In other words, if the Bible as God's word does not authenticate itself, nothing will be enough to authenticate it. Does that make sense? In other words, if the Bible cannot itself prove that it's the word of God, what outside of the word of God can prove it's the word of God? I mean, everything outside of the word of God would be the word of man. So can man be the authority to validate the word of God? He can't be. He can't be. Roman Catholicism's history shows that when the church attests to the authority of the Bible, it erodes the Bible's own authority. The history of the Roman Catholic Church shows this. Why? Because they have increasingly become dependent on man's statements, rules, verdicts, instead of the Scripture. Once they started down that path, it progressed. Right? So that now they're making statements and rules and all these things based on what the Pope says or what councils say. We haven't had a council in a long time. But what councils say as the word of God. Well, how do you do that? Well, you just say that what they say is the word of God. And then it's the word of God, right? No, that doesn't make way. You can't say, look, you know what? I wrote this paper on church membership. And it is so good. Clearly, it's the word of God. And then you would say, okay then, yeah, I guess that's the word of God. No! You'd be like, uh, I know you, yeah, you're not God. And you're not writing with God's authority. You with me on this? Yeah, of course that can't be the case. You can't, just somebody can't just say, yeah, uh, I heard from God. Okay, this is actually getting a little close to home now. I gotta be good, just sorry if I step on somebody's toes, because you might know somebody that said this because I've had many people say this. I've heard this through the years. I heard from God, and he wanted me to tell you this. Hmm, really? Wow, that's very interesting. So he can't speak to me? I, he's not able to speak to me? Did I have my music up too loud? What, what happened there? Why couldn't he speak to me? And then, how do I know that's true? How do I know that that's just not what you want me to do? Even with good intentions, that that's really, you know, you just really feel like, man, if I would just do this, if you would just wear turtlenecks, it's going to be way more flattering on you. So, I, you know, the Lord told me you should wear turtlenecks. You're going to be more effective in sharing the gospel if you wear turtlenecks. Does that make it from God? Because somebody says so. It doesn't. And yet, there are lots of televangelists today who say that. They don't say the turtleneck thing. Okay, that was, I'm just saying. But they say, look, God has told me to tell you. Ooh, red flag. Red flag. Yeah. What they can say is, the Spirit has moved me to preach this passage to you. That could be true. Right? Now, is it true? Well, we don't for sure know that, do we? I mean, if somebody, if Brant gets up this morning and says, look, the Spirit of God led me to change. We're not going to do Genesis. We're going to change from Genesis to Maccabees. Okay. If, if he got up this morning and said, the Spirit led me to preach Maccabees this morning. Now, you right away, you'd be like, uh... Paul, Brian, you're going to do something here? <laughs> it would be, you'd be like, everybody would know, okay, this ain't right. But if Brant's got up there this morning, he said, look, the Spirit has told me that I should preach to you from Luke today instead of from Genesis. Could that be true? Could it be true? It could be true. Is it for sure true? You can't know if it's for sure true, can you? What you, what you it's right. Don't know. He thinks so. Is it true? Don't know. Or was it just that he had this burden? He felt like he needed to preach from Luke. 
or he read something this week and it was about Luke and it was really good and so he wanted to preach Luke. You, you see what I'm saying? In other words, if somebody says, the Holy Spirit led me to do this, that may be true, it may not be true. The only thing we know for sure that's true is God's word. So when then he says, the Holy Spirit's led me to preach, this is all, you know, if he gets up there and does this, I'm going to freak out. But anyway, if he, if he gets up there and he says, look, the Spirit led me to preach in Luke today instead of our series in Genesis, right? And then he starts preaching in Luke, and he's preaching the word of God. No harm, no foul. Right? In other words, he's not preaching. The Spirit also told me to tell you this. Now warning sign. Now he's saying that he got individual revelation that you didn't get, and he has to tell you about it. That's contrary to the completion of the Scriptures. That actually would go against the sufficiency of the Scriptures, too. Why? Because the Scriptures isn't enough. You needed a special message. You needed another message from God to tell you what you needed to know. There's a difference between illumination and revelation. Illumination of the Spirit could be he feels led to do this and it was the Spirit leading him. And that could be. And we don't know for sure. We can't tell. We can't say it's not true. We can't say it's true. You with me? And if you're honest, that's the way it is in your life. Isn't it? That's the way it is in your life. Because you sometimes, somebody could nod if they say this is true. You sometimes, Paul's really good at it. Now he nods all the time. I appreciate that. But you, you sometimes feel like, I should do this. I, I don't understand why. And then sometimes, later on, you say, you know what? That was the Spirit telling me to do this. Right? And sometimes you feel like, oh, man, I don't want to do this. But I feel like God's telling me to do this. Does that not happen sometimes? And sometimes, it may not be the Spirit. Do you sometimes question that? Is God really telling me to do this? Why would I stop at that store and pick up a bottle of pop? I never go there. Why would I do this? Huh? You say, really? Bottle of pop? That's where we're going. Let's say Verner's. Let's, let's, let's make it holy. We just stop for a bottle of Verner's. <laughs> I love Verner's. So we stop for a bottle of Verner's. Now, why? Don't know. Was that the spirit or was that your stomach? But then what happens is when you go to the counter and somebody, you say, how you doing? Uh, hard time today. Oh, really? Why? Such and such just died. Really? Now you have an opportunity, right? Now you get out of there and you think, that was a spirit. But you weren't sure. Has this happened to you before? You're not sure. Why? It, I feel like I should do this, but I don't really know why. And then you wonder, is it the spirit? Right? Why do you wonder this? Why do you not know? Because you're still in the flesh. You're still in the flesh. You still have that sin nature within you that can taint the working of the Spirit. So you have to prayerfully consider it. Right? Now you know for sure, I mean, you know for sure, the Spirit is not going to lead you to do something that's sin. Right? But I would argue personally, stopping for Verners is not a sin. I personally, some people might say different, but I would say it's not a sin. But you understand what I'm saying, right? The Spirit testifies to us, not perfectly, not perfectly. Sometimes you are really convinced and convicted, and the Spirit is really strongly pulling at your heart, yes? And then other times it's just slight, it's just a slight thing, and you don't, you're not 100% sure. That's because we still have man in us. So we need his word to tell us. But the Spirit itself through you tells you it's true or it's not true. God's Word. Isn't it amazing sometimes that, I, I've, I'm sure you this has happened to you, you'll hear some non-believer, non-preacher, non, you know, not anything to do with religion. I'm saying you'll just hear somebody speaking or saying something. And they'll say something and it strikes you, the Bible says that. Has that ever happened to you? Like, you're hearing somebody speak, and they'll say some kind of a truth, you know, some kind of a truth about something, and you'll say, you'll think to yourself, "That's a good point. That almost sounds like the scripture." And then later, you find the scripture. You find the scripture. Why did that happen? 
Because the Spirit testified to you. That's what happened. The Spirit testified in your heart when you heard Scripture. If that hasn't happened to you, I hope it does. It's a little eye-opening. Like, wow. I I didn't recognize that. That's from the Bible. Heck, I just quoted the Bible. Now, if you would have said, thee and thy, blah, 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 then you would have probably known, okay, it has to be the Bible. But anyway, I'm just talking about regular language, regular English language that we're used to. All right. So there are some footnotes for this. Point number eight, John 16, 13, and 14, 1 Corinthians 2, 10, and 12, and 1 John 2, 20, and 27. Like we talked about before, we're not reading all those because that's part of your homework. Not a lot of time left, but we're going to kick this off because this is going to be a big one anyway. All right, paragraph six, which you already read. That was already homework. Remember that? It was a couple weeks ago. Do you remember this? All right, so we're going to do paragraph six and paragraph seven. That's the two that I'm going to give your homework right now. If you haven't read six yet, read six. Read seven. Read the scriptures. You won't have any homework for a while because six is take a little bit of time. Seven is going to take a longer time, and we're going to be going through that for a while for probably more than a month. All right. The whole counsel of God. So this is, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, the paragraph about the sufficiency of Scripture. In other words, what the Scripture is for. What is it sufficient for? What, um, I don't want to, I'm going to steal my own thunder if I say anything else. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary, necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, the government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Okay, so there's kind of three big things that are happening in this paragraph about the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, just to go from bottom to top, the last thing is talking about things that are not specified in the word. How do we deal with things like that? Like, this is why the Baptists included this in their confession, like the government of the church, and the worship of God. They differed from Presbyterians, Puritan or Congregationalists, right? They differed from them. Did they still believe they were believers? Absolutely. No question. So they're making an exception here to say, look, the Scripture tells us everything we need to know about these things, except there are some things where it doesn't, so we're supposed to use a different method to determine what to do. That's the last thing. The middle thing is, nothing should be added to it. Nothing should be added to it. And the first thing is, here is what the word of God or the whole counsel of God applies to. That's the three things we see. That's how we're going to break them down. So number one, I'm sorry, number A, letter A, is the statement of its sufficiency. And we start with the scope of its sufficiency. So this is the beginning of the, I don't need to read, I just read it, beginning of the paragraph. The whole counsel of God indicates that this is everything that God wants us to know and understand. It is his complete revelation to us. The whole counsel of God is his word. If it was not the whole counsel of God, he would still be revealing himself, right? There would still be some additional revelation happening. The confession specifies all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. In other words, this is saying that this is what it's for. This is the scope His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. Okay, that's pretty big. Would you agree that that's pretty big? Look, it doesn't tell you how to fix a car. Automotive repair is not on the list. Pharmacy, not on the list. Are there some truths about pharmacy in the Scripture? Yeah, there are. Are there some truths about automobile repair in the Scripture? Paul is saying no. Daniel is saying yes. There are some. Let me give you an example. Being a good steward. Is this not taught in the scripture over and over again? To steward what you have? So what should you do with your automobile? 
you should be a good steward. It's a principle, but it doesn't tell you how to change the oil. Right? Nor does it tell you, by the way, how often to feed a horse. They had horses. Does it tell you how often to feed a horse? No. Not in there. Not designed for that. Not supposed to be designed for that. Is there truths in there about horses? There are. Right? There are. For instance, you shouldn't mistreat a horse. That's in Scripture. Right? A horse should be able to eat, particularly if he produces something. Right? He should be able to eat of what he produces. That's in the Scripture. Right? Right. The confession is not implying omnisufficiency. Not implying that. What would omnisufficient be? It would be sufficient for everything. So that's what I just explained, right? It's not sufficient for everything. The question is, what are the scriptures sufficient for? The scriptures are not all sufficient in every conceivable purpose. We just broke that down. Individually, it is sufficient. There's two ways the scriptures are sufficient. Individually and corporately. Individually and corporately. So individually first. Individually, it's sufficient for the redemption of man. It is not sufficient for all that we do, but it does speak to all that we do sufficiently as to the glory of God, the way of salvation, and the path of duty. That's what the scriptures teach us. You want to know how you're to live as a Christian? The scriptures cover that. It's covered. There, it's sufficient for that. Why does that matter to us? If you embrace and understand the sufficiency of scripture, no commands of man are ever going to enter your mind as a possible thing you have to obey. Because if it's not in the scripture, did God forget to say it? If the scriptures are sufficient for you to live your life, it must be included in the scripture. You understand what I'm saying? You see it? Corporately. It's sufficient for the whole ethical and religious sphere of life. How? Two points. Religion and ethics are the supreme sphere of human life and knowledge. Religion and ethics are the supreme sphere of human life and knowledge. Look, so we have new term for it. We have term, well, new terms. Since 1689, at least. We have two terms. For the physical and the spiritual. What are they? We call it the physical and the metaphysical. So you'll see people speak on metaphysics. What are they talking about? Spiritual. They're talking about spiritual. You can't, you can't put your finger on that. You can't see it in a test tube, can you? That's what they're talking about. They talk about it all the time. All the time. But because it doesn't say spiritual, you don't necessarily think of it that way. But that's what it is. That's what they're talking about. The, the great debates and concerns that people have are not about whether or not you should get vaccinated for COVID. They're not whether or not there should be a Republican or Democrat in, in the White House. They're not whether or not we should all live in a commune or not. It's, is every man able to do whatever he wants to? Is that okay? Do we together determine what's right and what's wrong? And this is a huge problem. It's debated all the time. You don't see it like that, though, because they use words that make you think that's not what they're talking about. It's exactly what they're talking about. Here's a problem. When a group gets together and they think that cannibalism is okay, does that make it okay? When a group or a country gets together and thinks pedophilia is okay, does that make it okay? But see, that's where we're at. So look, the United States has said homosexuality is okay. For many years, it's okay. It's fine. But guess what? There's lots of countries who have said homosexuality is wrong. And they're standing by it. It's death penalty. So if you say, well, why is homosexuality okay? Well, because we've all become more enlightened and more passionate, compassionate, and we understand that this is something that's okay, and we're just going to decide together, as a majority of us all believe it's okay, so it's okay. Oh. All right, so then you don't have a problem with the fact they put people to death in another country because they've decided it's not okay. You see the problem? Then it's, well, 
we're right and they're wrong. Why? Well, because we know better. <laughs> According to who? Us. There's no higher authority. If you don't recognize the scripture, you don't have a higher authority, right? Can you see the debate? Can you see the problem? Hey, look, you don't hear about this in the media very often, do you? I don't want you to hear it. What they want you to think is that whatever the pop culture says in this country is what's true. Why do you think most of these other countries don't want to join in with the United States on treaties and other things like this? They do not want to be the United States. They don't agree with us. Everybody thought England totally was in on the European Union. Boy, they agree with everything. They do not know they don't, do they? They're out of the European Union. They didn't agree. And then, you remember all that? Do you, like, does anybody ever hear the news? Like, maybe. Do you remember all these naysayers, doomsday prophesiers? England gets out of the European Union. Their economy is going to collapse. They're not going to have any more trade. They're going to lose all their jobs. Okay, so it's been over two years since they left the European Union. Has England's economy collapsed? No. Has their jobs all gone away? No. Did they stop trade? No. You know what that tells you? You can't believe the news. You can't believe the news. They're telling you what they want you to think. They're telling you what they want you to think so you can influence events to try to make them real. It's, it is about this debate. It's about ethical and religious sphere of life. That's what they're talking about. Who should be in charge? Who should be in control? What's right? What's wrong? Is it right for everyone to have different levels of stuff? Communism says no. Everyone must have the same. Except there's never been any time in history where that's been true. Ever. Even with the great purges that Stalin did in Russia. Killed millions of people. The greatest number of people killed by their leader ever in history is Stalin. You know, that talked about very often, but it was. Far greater than any other numbers. Cleansed, quote-unquote, the people. Did that fix the problems in Russia? No. Stalin lived better than them all. The Bible is not a textbook on all subjects, but it provides the ethical and religious perspectives basic to any proper understanding. Essentially, it provides a framework or worldview through which everything else is comprehended. Look, you have a worldview. A worldview or a framework, different languages used for it, a perspective, you could say, but it's bigger than that. It's bigger than just a perspective on an issue. A worldview or a framework that you view the world is how you make determinations about what's true, what's false, what's right, what's wrong. And your worldview can shift, right? So you could be here, and it could shift this way, it could shift this way. That's possible. But by and large, you're in one particular end of the scale or another. If you believe in the Bible and God, then you are going to have, generally, you should have a biblical worldview. Is it going to be perfect? No, it's not going to be perfect for any of us. But that's generally where you should come from. In other words, that you should start with the fact that the Bible is true, not man, the Bible. And if there's something that conflicts, man's wrong. That'd be a biblical worldview. If you have a secular worldview, you're going to say the opposite. You're going to say, God's not real. If there's a conflict between religion and ethics or morality as I view it, the Bible's wrong. It's what I think. You see? This is the difference. You want to see a great example of somebody explaining that concept and explaining to people how that framework of reality and truth cannot be based on what man's opinions are, but have to be based on a higher authority beyond man. I, I challenge you to search this on YouTube. Search for Billy Graham, TED, T-E-D, TED. There's a TED conference every year. It's a technology gathering. Silicon Valley, well, they move it around now, but he was in Silicon Valley. This is right before he died, months before he died. Billy Graham was asked to speak there. Now, you understand what I'm saying, right? These are not Christians. These are not Christians. The guy who started it, his name is actually Ted something, remember his name, but he invited Billy Graham. And Billy Graham spoke for about an hour 
and he had to have help to get up on the platform, right to over to the podium, and he's old, but he explains why morality can't be based on what we think is true. It has to be based on something beyond that. And that all the technology and everything that's happening still doesn't change the brute truth. Man is flawed. Man is sinful. And anything that he comes up with is going to be flawed. And this is the difficulty. It's a great message. I'd recommend you listen to it because he explains this concept very well in that that message. Let's close in a word of prayer.